Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the writer, Sarah Gibbs. Hello. Hello, Hello Sarah. Hello. Merry Christmas. This is one of our Christmas ones. So we sort of cheat a bit. Normally we are kind of dependent on what someone brings in. Uh, this time we force people at gunpoint to bring something Christmassy in whether they want to or not, hoping it's something they also like. Was it peanuts? Pay, peanuts, yes. You, you got the notes, didn't you? Something. something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, today we're going to be talking about A Charlie Brown Christmas, the... 1965 TV special because it's Christmas and there's nothing Christmassier than that and even though we could just sit here and talk about Sarah's work and Dead Ringers and MASH and Succubus and things we're going to just ignore you great it's like being with my family (laughs) (laughs) just think of us as some people who will talk over you and ask when you're going to get a proper job brilliant I don't actually do the Daily MASH anymore on the regular Um, moved on Yes, I have. This is just going to be a lot of me saying I don't actually do that anymore. Yeah, it has been a year of quitting things, uh, <laughs> mainly for bigger projects that are in the works. So it's good quitting. Yeah, I did have a month of that where I threw all the paid things in the bin and then there was sort of a lag between that and the start of the next project. <laughs> and I knew that it was going to start up again, but there was sort of a month where I was just in my pyjamas eating cereal going, I don't, do I work? Because you're, you're a grafter, you're a good hard worker. And it's people sort of think freelancers... It's mainly sort of, I don't know, lying in bed in, in watching Homes Under the Hammer and things. And people always talked about that. And I used to giggle thinking, I don't think I ever did that. I just no. always worked. No time for Homes Under the Hammer. People I know who tend to do it tend to be performers, I think, because they're used to sort of having space between jobs and the jobs being paid okay. Mm. But if you're a writer, you don't really have many, well, you shouldn't have too many of those days 
eating fish on toast and, and watching daytime telly. Also, actors are... Because when you're filming something, there's so much sitting around. Actors are very good at sitting around, aren't they? Whenever we go on set for something, I'm always watching the actors and how comfortable they are doing nothing. I think, oh, God, is that a skill you develop? Because mm, I imagine if, yeah. you were, if you were as needy for distraction as a writer on set, if all the cast were like that, <laughs> it'd be awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, in that month, I found out that's what Twitter is for. Oh, so right. Yeah, true. Just spunked out all of my errant thoughts into the... Twitterverse and then enjoyed the barrage of abuse I received in return. (laughs) Some of the subjects I talk about can be a bit contentious and so uh, I come to expect grief. I think there are people on Twitter who really thrive on the grief. They really enjoy the conflict and I think of sort of just, it's like a nasty side effect of a of a really nice drug. <laughs> like you get your hit, you get your hit of like people retweeting you and, and engaging with you in a nice way and then, you know, you you might shit yourself for a couple of hours, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. You should say that at the bottom of Twitter. So side effects include nausea, dizziness and fascism. Just to clarify, I haven't just announced that I shit myself on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry. We'll, we'll, but we will edit it to make it sound like um, that's exactly what you did. Great. I might even put in a sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) She's doing it right now. Twitter's an interesting thing, or doing jokes on Twitter is an interesting thing because it's finding uh, an audience, especially when you don't have one. When you, I mean, people tend to do it when they're idle. Certainly, comedians and comedy writers tend to use it as a place to put ideas that otherwise they'd have nowhere else to put. And it's a way of getting a reaction and a way of when you're freelance and on your own not feeling alone I suppose yeah and also all three jobs that I'm currently doing in addition to dead ringers are directly from Twitter so I mean you're putting stuff out there for free but it's it's sort of like a job interview I guess <laughs> yeah I mean I think it's great for people like me who don't get out a lot because <laughs> it's sort of a, it's sort of a way of being heard without actually having to get up on a stage or get dressed um... <laughs> makes that option it's a, it's a trousers optional medium <laughs> Absolutely. You do get work off it. I mean, you certainly have got done really, really well. You've made amazing contacts by using that. Probably far above you would have done if, if you would say, come along as a new writer in the age of weekending mm. and you would have been locked into a room with 20 other people, mainly men in cardigans, um, to come up with jokes about John Major and then sent, then just jumped on a, a train back to the suburbs. And that would have been your social nexus as a new writer. And we know, as writers, how much a social nexus was so important to us at the beginning getting to know people, going to pubs, going to meetings, going to social events. If you aren't able to do that, for whatever reason, geography, social situation, um, having access to, to a wider comedy village must be vital. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's it can be quite isolating writing, especially because you two write in a partnership. I pretty much write solo, and so a lot of it is sort of just banging your head against the wall and going, is this funny? And there's, <laughs> you know, there's no one to bounce ideas off of and there's no one to check. I mean, I, I send everything to my husband because he's going to sort of clap and tell me I'm, I'm good. You know, other than that, it, it, it can be quite an isolating experience. So sort of the instant gratification of putting something on Twitter and actually communicating with people, like getting work aside. Um. You've also done a, a very, a really cool thing on Twitter, which is your thread about being autistic and about the things that people don't understand about people who have ASD, which is worthy of its own round of applause, frankly. It's good writing, it's good thinking, and it also serves a very good purpose. Mm. That was a compliment. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm so not used to those. <laughs> Has she been on Twitter too long? My my phone didn't go off. What do you mean? <laughs> I, I was like, where's he going with this? But you shouldn't have done that. You. It was bad. No. <laughs> there's, there's a connection here between sort of feelings of loneliness and feelings of being an outsider, being on your own, not being part of a community. 
and I remember rediscovering. I'd always loved peanuts, but rediscovering peanuts as an adult and looking at it and I'm being quite genuinely moved by going, I related to it so much as a kid. It was so important to me as a child. And looking at it as an adult and going, oh my God, it's about lonely kids. It's mm. about kids with depression. The word depression is used in it all the time. It's about feeling an outsider, feeling that no one understands you. It's an incredibly comforting voice to hear when you think it's just you. Uh, and I wondered if that was something that had, that had touched you as a kid or whether you came to Peanuts uh, uh, when you were much older. Well, I came to Peanuts in a sort of roundabout way because we didn't have a TV growing up. Oh, right. Which is sort of weird for a TV writer. Um, but my... have, you got, have, you, have you seen television since? <laughs> no, I, I mean, we have we have one, but I, I, no one taught me how to turn it on. <laughs> um, so it just sits there. Um, but no, we, we had a monitor growing up, but um, I think my parents were kind of scared of it. They covered it in a silk cloth and put crystals on top. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was to sort of ward away the evil, evil spirits. spirits or if it was just so they could tell if we'd taken the cloth off and oh. moved the crystals, which would be cle- more cle- I Maybe giving them too much credit, I don't know. That's occurred to me since. <laughs> but because um, we didn't have a TV, we had we had sort of peanuts books and annuals yeah. and things like that. So I was introduced at a young age, but it wasn't sort of through this visual medium. Um, obviously, it was visual, it was a book, yeah. but it wasn't through this sort of easy-to-consume medium, I guess. Mm. Um and it was when I met my husband and he had this tradition of watching the holiday specials at the right time. You know, uh, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. There's a ritual calendar of peanuts. Yeah. It's mm. like, like a liturgical calendar. You have to follow it. Exactly. Um, and so that sort of became our tradition. So I only came at it with grown up eyes um, uh-huh. and I didn't have that, that sort of childhood connection to it. You saw the books first? Yes. You had seen the books. Did you like the books as a kid? I did. I mean, I think I didn't quite understand them. I think I enjoyed the pictures. Yeah. I didn't quite understand these sort of very precocious adult kids, you know, speaking like little adults uh, with these very high concepts in this sort of oddly juxtaposed innocent way. Mm. I enjoyed it on a level, but I think as an adult, there's a whole other level that you sort of understand and a a sort of existential ennui that (laughs) runs through Mm. the whole series that as a kid, you maybe miss entirely. I remember I had a a friend who uh, I used to get the bus to school with and I was a huge Peanuts fan. And he said to me, he said, do you read Charlie Brown? I went, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, I've never laughed at it. And I was saying to him, no, neither have I. And he said, but do you like it? I went, I absolutely love it. <laughs> and I think it was because I think I, I've got the humour more as I've got older. I like Snoopy. I loved it and needed it and wanted it more than I laughed at it. I think getting older, I now find it hilarious. But I think it's quite a deep adult humour to get the references. So much of it flies over your head that even though you love it as a kid, most of it is aimed at, at adults, and it's not a children's comic. It occurred to me watching, rewatching the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which is the first of the animated um, Peanuts specials that Bill Melendez and Lee Mendelssohn put together with Charles Schultz, that I don't think enough people talk about the line straight through from this special to The Simpsons. Mm. And what it is, it's 
naive. It's been produced quite quickly. It's TV animation. Apparently, they had six months to make yeah. it. Uh, At the behest of Coca-Cola. Yeah, Coca-Cola said they'd, they'd fund it. <laughs> Apparently, the version we see has got a lot of the Coca-Cola branding removed. For an anti-corporate, anti-consumerist fable, the fact that it's sponsored by Coke <laughs> yeah. is just terrific. Uh, they were doing it so quickly, in such a quick style, which luckily suits Schultz's straight to the paper. He never used pencils. He mm. used to just draw paint oh, straight really? to wow. Yeah, uh, if you go and see the artwork in, in exhibition, the, usually when you go and see cartoon artwork, there's a pencil line underneath it yeah. that you feel a little, gives you a contact to the artist. But Schultz used to plan them roughly on envelopes and scraps of paper and then go straight to the page, which keeps the line very alive. But it's a very, very lively, very naive line. And The Simpsons has got that. It's a very lively, very naive line, but with totally adult concerns. What strikes you about this is it's not a children's cartoon. It's not Top Cat. It's not uh, Danger Mouse. It's not got a childish... No one's rubbery. No one bounces around. It's not got the movement of Mickey Mouse or of Bugs Bunny. No one is a cartoon character. It's a sitcom. They're real people, and they're real adult people with child children's voices. It's like Blue Remembered Hills or something. It's a slightly <laughs> artistic thing. But that straight line goes through to The Simpsons, which is saying adult concerns, adult emotions, real characters, naive drawings, mm. like like a child might draw. And it's just something goes straight through that and speaks to you, at your adult and your child, your inner child and your, and your grown-up adult. I find that absolutely fascinating. Incidentally, I know how you feel about all this Christmas business, getting depressed and all that. It happens to me every year. I never get what I really want. I always get a lot of stupid toys or a bicycle or clothes or something like that. What is it you want? Real estate. I think there's a lot of that that was sort of lost. I mean, we're talking about this Christmas special, but in later specials and the New Year's special and the ones that were made in the 80s. Totally. There's this massive tonal shift where the, the kids sound older, the animation is sharper... And it, there's some, there's a bit of magic lost in it for me when I think, first of all, this Christmas special, the original um, Charlie Brown Christmas, has so much space in it. There's, yes. there's mm. so much room. They they will just take their time over everything. Nothing moves. There's there's not really even much of a plot. It's, no. it's just sort it's of... It's thematic more than narrative almost. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's long sequences where, you know, Charlie Brown's just staring out the window at the snow or, you know, they just they just let him slowly walk to the letterbox. They let him take his time. And I think a lot of that's lost later on where it's very dialogue heavy, it's very plot heavy, um, that it moves a lot faster. You can see that they've sort of... They've shifted it to appeal to kids more yeah. and, to, and to appeal to the times. Everything about this special points to it failing yeah. because they've, they've made every single in inverted commas mistake you could make everyone thought it was going to flop uh, made too quickly I think there's a great phrase Lee Mendelssohn said that on Wednesday they thought of the idea of doing it and they said to Schultz we need a, a pitch ready for Monday so it's put together and all that bits that are in that pitch are what the, the thing mm. is there's a Christmas tree a, a children's show Linus reading from the Bible all the elements were, were done in those three day, three or four days of thinking and that all went off and they didn't have time to have second thoughts about it but the th- decisions they made, which were to run, uh, run it off jazz, to run it off space, and to leave gaps in it, and to not put a laugh track on. I learned yeah. something interesting this week, that drive-through movies, which are not a thing that we have here, but the prints of films for drive-through movies, if they were comedy, had a laugh track. Because if you're all sitting in cars, you can't necessarily hear the other people laughing, so it was cued on the soundtrack of the film. Wow. But I think what's beautiful about this is that you can talk about the theory of laugh tracks forever. Laugh tracks are there to, to make it feel like a communal experience. Peanuts isn't a communal experience. You read that comic strip on your own in the newspaper. 
it's a one-on-one thing and it's about loneliness and it's about separation. The group in Peanuts, the mass, the mob, are mean and savage and unforgiving and, and can be turned round, which is the message at the plot. There is one is, can you turn the mob round? <laughs> but Peanuts is an intimate thing. It's a beautiful thing because that's where the art is. The art is in the one-on-one relationship, not in the sound of loads of people laughing. I think that would have been incredibly jarring. I think it, I can't imagine what it would have been if they if they'd made that decision. Mm. I think it wasn't Schultz who said he just didn't want to tell people when to laugh. Yeah, it was very generous. Mm. And oddly, the, the, the message of it, if, if people haven't seen it, the message of this is it's Charlie Brown, the opening line. The opening line is... I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Charlie Brown sits on the wall with Linus, which is a snow-covered wall, with his head in his hands looking like he's... He, the weight of the world is on his shoulders. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. And that's the opening line of a feel-good Christmas cartoon special for all the family, <laughs> sponsored by Coca-Cola. And then at the end of the thing, that question has been answered 24 minutes later about what's the true meaning of Christmas and how do you avoid depression at Christmas? And it's so astonishing a thing to do to say well okay that's surely the whole point of the american christmas special is to fill everyone with sugar to the extent they don't notice they're depressed (laughs) (laughs) well you know afterwards have a coca-cola cheer yourself up (laughs) yeah just a sugar rush will do but it's it is it's so unsaccharine yeah and the odd thing about this as well is that peanuts is the most heavily merchandised and commercialized comic strip of all time lunch boxes and cards and happiness as a warm puppy bumper stickers it exists as the most marketed brand and yet the essence of the of the actual stories is all about anti-consumerism i mean charlie brown is the kid left behind by the american dream what if you can't be the greatest baseball player of all time what if everyone just thinks you're a blockhead how do you negotiate america's demand that you be exceptional the thing what's interesting is that there is an air of loneliness, but also he feels alone in company because he yes. is absolutely part of the group, even if they call him a blockhead, and he, <laughs> even if they're all really pissed off that he's directing the Christmas play because he's going to ruin it. They they still let him direct the play. They still include him. He's still part of the family. So there's something, I, d- I don't know, there's a sort of odd dichotomy there of, you know, this this feeling of loneliness despite it all that other people aren't necessarily the answer. Rats. Nobody sent me a Christmas card today. I almost wish there weren't a holiday season. I know nobody likes me. Why do we have to have a holiday season to emphasize it? Um, there's a, the, the community is, is what, I mean, what's beautiful about the story is that it starts off with a, a kid and his best friend just saying, I'm lonely and I'm depressed. And the kid, uh, the friend offering some advice and then that friend staying with him for the whole thing. And by the end of it, all the community comes together on his terms. And that's just that's the Christmasiest story of all, isn't it? That you, that that you that you all pull together. That there is a community even when it doesn't look like one. Even though everyone sort of dismisses him, and he's sort of seen to be invisible, and they run jokes about that all the time. No one actually hates him. 
No. Even and though his dog boos him. <laughs> <laughs> well, Snoopy's just very mean. <laughs> I noticed in these early specials, he's really mean. He's very... <laughs> he appears to be like the other side of America, the, yeah. the Joe Cool, the successful, the exceptionalist, the guy who reckons he's got it all. He's the brash GI who turns up and steals your girl kind of <laughs> character. He really pimps his kennel in this one as well, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um, the nativity play, of course, um, which is the centrepiece of the, of the film, I, I have a theory that this is a nativity play within a nativity play because the whole thing, the whole thing about Peanuts is that it is children voicing adult concerns. Yes. And that's what a nativity play is. This is children playing adults. Yes. It's, it's, they've, they've always got a cotton wool beard on, haven't they? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, some of the dialogue I thought was great. I've forgotten how well written some of the dialogue is. You know, there's good, there are good gags in this. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. Um, <laughs> but there's also lovely lines like, there's one where he, there's just a, it's just beautifully worded. He says, I'm in sad shape. Oh, I think that's nice. great, isn't it? What a really nice way of putting it. And my favourite thing as well in this is that the, the two girls who Charlie Brown is surrounded by, which is, which is uh, this is pre-Peppermint Patty, who's only going to write, who's my favourite character in all of 20th century fiction. She will be arriving in a couple of years' time. Uh, at summer camp so we don't have Peppermint Patty but we do have Sally and Lucy as the two girls who pull Charlie Brown in different directions and they're both awful in their own <laughs> ways I mean obviously they are heroic female voices but the great thing is when he's asking them what they want for Christmas what do you want? Real estate It's <laughs> <laughs> Lucy's take on it and then Sally who's, who's his little sister who feels to be sort of the worst sort of America to come in waiting, that bratty mm. baby boomer voice. Dear Santa Claus, I have been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and twenties? Tens and twenties? Oh, even my baby sister. All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Well, the little girl who played Sally um, was actually so young that she couldn't read. Oh. Um, and so the director was feeding her lines and she was repeating them. And there's just Not nothing... Marlon Brando. <laughs> <laughs> or Mae West. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing funnier than a kid who's saying things that are sort of too old to be coming yes. out of their mouth and they don't mm. really understand what they're saying you know because my nephew he's nearly two and there's nothing more fun than making him say things that are just a little bit above his pay grade like um mm -hmm. <laughs> yesterday someone someone pointed out that he was you know he he's a he's a stout little boy he's he's, he's two he's spherical yeah. and um and i said give him a complex and he just goes complex <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there's a brilliant line where lucy says look charlie let's face it we all know that Christmas is a big commercial racket. It's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know. <laughs> hearing a seven-year-old girl say that, it's just... Um, they're overhearing... You get the feeling they've overheard adults saying this stuff, like mm. that kids do, like you're saying, the complex thing. But what's lovely is they, it gives them the voice of competing philosophies and things. I mean, the penis is so philosophical. It's 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 a huge step forward in, in graphic storytelling to say we'll, we'll go for the gag and we'll go for visual gags and we'll go for character jokes and verbal jokes, but we're mainly going for competing philosophies. And the most beautiful moment is at the core of it is that scene where Linus makes a biblical reading, which was there from day one of the, of the, the ideas brainstorm, that at the end of it they'd go, Charlie Brown goes, I don't feel Christmas, and then Linus would give a, a, a biblical reading from, from the Christmas story. From Luke. Schultz suggested it and they said this feels a bit dodgy this is a separation of church and state and all that sort of stuff 
uh, and he was a he had a complicated religious background. He was raised a Methodist, I think, but very much over his life sort of moved away from it and became much more humanist. But he still has it in there, and he said, "If we don't do it, who will?" Which is a beautiful hmm. uh, thing of saying. All the other Christmas specials won't do this. We're going to do the true meaning of Christmas, and they have that moment where it kicks in, and Linus is is lit by a really simple spotlight. And they put a tiny bit of church hall, school hall reverb on his voice. And shivers go up your spine. Mm. And I think, possibly St Paul's Cathedral. No, I think this is the best thing religion has ever given us, is Linus's speech in A Charlie Brown Christmas. I think all other things religion <laughs> have done have been problematic. But this is unarguably a good thing that religion did. Because it reminds you of that communality, of that shared values. It's. I don't think it belongs to Christianity, this speech. It just says... There's hope for lost souls. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I don't think, I'm not Christian, but it, for some reason it takes me back. It's like standing in an old cathedral and suddenly thinking, well, we can destroy all religion, but can we just keep this building and that choir? It gives you that rush that Christmas carols give you. It's just, oh, I can't, I, I, that moment is one of my favourite moments in art, Linus's speech. I just love the, it's the reverb, I think. The reverb is beautiful. And also, I, uh, my favourite little detail is at the end where he finishes this beautiful, profound reading and then he, he picks up his little blanket and walks off. Yeah. <laughs> and you just remember he's a child. You know? the, the blanket he's pressed into service as a shepherd's, yeah. a shepherd's oh, cowl. Great, that's a lovely switchback. That <laughs> yeah. And also that lovely line we said, I'm thinking, what are you going to do when you get older? I think I'll turn it into a sports coat. <laughs> he'll, be he'll always have his blanket with it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Charlie Brown and, and, and Linus are two characters, two child characters who have got mental health issues. Charlie Brown is depressive and says so, goes to see Lucy, the worst psychiatrist in the world. And and uh, Linus is a, a philosopher. That's, hang on, Kit, this is a, we we just gone past that. Like that's a normal thing. Yeah, he goes. Kids <laughs> playing psychiatrists. We know that, we know that kids play doctors and nurses, right? That's yeah. the thing because they understand doctors and nurses. These kids understand shrinks. Basically, and it's also, I love the fact that it was based. Schultz said it was based on a lemonade stand. Yeah, you know they put a lemonade stand. Mm. Now they sell lemonade or, or Girl Scout cookies or whatever. And I love how shamelessly she enjoys the money. Mm. <laughs> Boy, what a sound! How I love to hear that old money clink. That beautiful sound of cold hard cash. That beautiful, beautiful sound. Nickels, nickels, nickels. I find peanuts fascinating because it is an, a quintessentially American product to the extent that they put Charlie Brown on the outside of the Apollo 10 mission. It is so much. They are sending American values into space. And the what the lander was called Charlie Brown and the orbiter was called Snoopy. Otherwise, one way or other. Oh, really? It's on the side of the, wow. of the thing. It is America's big export to the world. And it tells you that they really have doubts about this whole America project. It's so strange for it to be so folksy and so down home. And it's called Peanuts, and it was originally going to be called Lil Folks, and it's it's baseball mounds, and everything about it is where I first heard about American culture. 
and it has total existential doubt about whether this is a good idea. And I find that incredible. There's a gag in a later episode. Snoopy is trying to find out who stole Woodstock's nest. That's <laughs> uh, And it turns out it was Sally uh, for a science project. And they, they go to Lucy for advice. And she sort of pulls down her psychiatrist um, <laughs> stand sign. And it's replaced by a legal advice sign. And she's jacked up the price. <laughs> <laughs> first time this has gone from it's been a successful comic strip for a few years and this is the first time it's gone to tv big jump over and they, they doubted it was going to do there were three networks at the time uh, and this got 50 percent just under 50 percent of the tv sets in america tuned in to watch this wow. they thought it would flop and it absolutely went like a rocket but it just became a fixture of, of the american christmas like it's a wonderful life um well, snowman yeah a, a snowman over here it becomes the Christmas hasn't started till you watch this. I mean, certainly in my house, the, the ritual calendar's pretty much adhered to with this needs to be watched, this and Tom and Jerry the night before Christmas. You can't have you. And then the snowman. It's important. Well, it's quite interesting parallels with the snowman, actually, aren't there? We, we've got the snowman, which is charming and everybody likes, but it is about a boy whose best friend melts. You know, <laughs> it's, not... it's preparing kids for when that happens in real life. Everyone at adulthood has had a best friend who's melted, haven't you? And the other thing it's got in common with this is, and I'm pleased we're getting to this point, music. Yes. Mm. Sophisticated adult trio piano yeah, jazz. Yeah, it's, ad- it's, it's adult music, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, w- that was in place from very early on. I think that was Vince Guaraldi to, to, to play the piano on it. Uh, I think Lee Mendelssohn had heard Vince Guaraldi had had a hit single called Cast Your Fate to the Wind, uh, which is great to listen to because it sounds like the dry run for Peanuts. said just do that over the cartoon and that I think gives you the motion and the emotion that it's quite hard to express in really simple lines when you're animating really quickly so a lot of the emotion and the the feeling of movement that's why it's okay to just watch Charlie Brown go walk through the snow to the letterbox and back it's because there's Vince Guaraldi playing underneath it it just goes to show they say never go with your first idea but I think it works clearly you should (laughs) yeah if your first idea is a good idea yeah, then you'd, you'd be <laughs> foolish to adhere to the idea that you should um, come up with another idea. There's that direct line to The Simpsons again in that it established this sort of the music being its own character yeah. in a way. Like it's it's so integral to to how you feel when you're watching it. Um, in a way that I think I think well, obviously all soundtracks are in that way, but this really weaves in and out of the dialogue in a way that makes it feel like it's it's an active part of the storytelling. And I think that's something that The Simpsons picked up later with, you know, every moment Homer has a shock and you hear a big dun-dun, you know, there's, yeah, yeah. the music is, is really involved with what's happening.
there's something incredibly beautiful about the animation. It's 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 it feels like a child's drawing, like yes. you said. Mm. Um, it's colourful and it's mesmerising, and they take their time over these sort of whimsical animated sequences. Um, these sort of these long vignettes, and there's no dialogue. It's just you're just watching this movement to music. Um, the big dance sequence where they use mm. they drop in a couple of times with those those kids doing those those four or five classic looped moves. Which doesn't look like a limitation. It becomes completely charming. You're looking at a different kid each time. The one who's yes. shaking her head from side to side. That's true. The kid who's, sh- yeah. who's shrugging his shoulders. They become, God, I just, they should have a, a, a round and strictly come dancing, which is Charlie Brown dancing. I Unless would love doing, that. Doing the Snoopy dance. That, that is how I dance. That is the only way I know how to dance. <laughs> I think one of those, I, I'm not very good on dance, but I'm fairly sure that one of those kids is frogging. Yes. I, I think there's imagine. a frog going on. Is there, there a hully gully happening? I mean, it could there be might anything. be, yes. Yeah. What is frogging? I'm aware we're on a podcast, but please do demonstrate. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll draw it for you later. <laughs> I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll mark this one explicit. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> kids won't download this. It's fine. But you say each kid's doing a different thing, but in that dance sequence when they're on stage right before yeah. they begin rehearsals, there are two identical kids. Are they twins? Aren't they Aren't they, call- they called three and four or something? Right? <laughs> I think I read that somewhere, that they've just got numbers. They don't have names. But they're doing the same dance move, but just sort of... Mirroring each yeah. other. But it's, it's beautiful. That's that's The simplicity of it is that would be in a Disney movie or whatever. They would be crossing over. There wouldn't be a single screen of them. All the decisions that would make that more elegant and more classy, more expensive. The simple, cheap version of it is somehow really satisfying. Everything about this should conspire against you reading emotion into it. You've got untrained children doing the voices. The voices are giving dialogue that's not age-appropriate, that could be seen as quite chilly and adult. The drawing style's really simple. There's almost no backgrounds. And yet, it makes me cry and makes me happy. The emotion of it is utterly unarguable. When they go to the tree yard, um, that it just—I looked at that and I thought, and this is not a clever observation at all, but it looks like a Christmas card. Yes, it looks like a Christmas card. Apart from that one terrible, obviously Charlie Brown being the sad, pathetic outsider, picks the sad, pathetic outsider tree as well, which then. <laughs> In good comic timing, he puts one bauble on it and it dies, basically. <laughs> Bends over and he says, I killed it. <laughs> but also, he's drawn towards it because I think... Uh, yeah, it's fr- him. Yeah, the phrase was, it was like his spirit animal, the thing that represents yeah. him, the, the, the unloved runt of the litter, the, the one who'll never succeed. And he, he says, oh, that's the one for me. And he goes, oh, your heart aches. It's a decision he makes because that's the one for him, but he knows it's an unpopular decision. You know, yeah. he's got Linus yeah. with him as the voice of reason going, I'm not sure that's what they want. Um, but he chooses it anyway. He's he's relentlessly true to himself. Yes, he knows himself. I mean, the worst thing would be, uh, I suppose, for him not to know. He's very, very aware of his limitations and of how he's seen. And it's painful. It seems to be agonising to him that he's, he's much more aware of himself. The other kids are very unself-aware. Lucy's not very self-aware. Schroeder's lost on his piano. Linus is a clever kid. But a lot of them don't really think about how the outside world sees them. And Charlie Brown's curse is to know exactly how he's seen. He could go there and buy the flashiest tree and be that kid. But he's drawn honestly towards the tree that authentically represents him. It's gorgeous. My my favourite scene in the whole thing is, uh, and I think this is such a bold move, is after Linus's speech, after his reading, um, Charlie Brown's walking home alone with his sad little tree and he just stops and looks at the twinkling stars and you you hear a bit of the speech again yes. they reiterate it it's just happened but they just they just take that moment and they they really just let it 
marinate and sink in and it's it's only there because it's just it's just beautiful and poignant it doesn't serve any narrative purpose he's just under the stars contemplating with his little tree that represents him that no one wanted and it's it's the most moving moment of the whole thing for me even more moving than the speech times that for various reasons you don't feel Christmas because you're too full of chocolates or you're forced into company you don't want to be with or you're just alone or it doesn't live up to your expectations and the whole message of the the, the story is that the American consumerist machine ups your expectations of this one day to a point where it could not possibly satisfy and then there's that simple child's voice in a school hall that says there is still hope and then from that point Nothing narratively happens. I mean, as a writer, you go, nothing changes except that the fact that that speech has been said brings all the kids round. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a magic spell almost. It is, and it's, it's a sort of a. I mean, it was the first one, but later on, you know, they they sort of changed it up, I guess, so that there were more cynical endings. You know, yeah. for example, the you know the Great Pumpkin. <laughs> you know, that's that's the terrible tale of like stark disappointment and broken and dreams. Crisis and, of faith. I mean, the Great yeah. Pumpkin you can read as as a quite a, a savage attack on on blind faith. Yeah, and there's there's no resolution there. There's no sort of happy ending. They they miss Halloween. Sally's very cross. I know. got a rock. I got a rock is my favourite line in Peanut Special. I got five pieces of candy. I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. I got a rock. No one explains why someone who's waiting for children to come round has kept a box of rocks. Not, <laughs> not even, just one person. Every house has got a rock. <laughs> Charlie Brown, because the universe hates him so much, will get a rock. Yeah, so there's a lot more cynicism in, in The Great Pumpkin. Yeah, I mean, this was quite a saccharine sweet ending for, for Schultz, really. But I, I think what's interesting with Linus being the one to deliver that speech is that Schultz has said that Linus represents a spiritual side. He didn't say religious, as you were saying. Yeah. He said spiritual, mm. which I think... It's interesting that he chose a religious passage. It translated on broadcast to have a spiritual meaning and it connected beyond its religious implications and it was moving for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, what it's saying is that what you need at Christmas, that Christmas or any kind of big community or social festival is meaningless without some spirit. And that, Oh, God, that's what gets me. Is he goes, mm. this is it, the promise of salvation, whatever religion you are. That, that you won't be abandoned is just, oh, it gets you. And it's, that's the message of the a special, which is not bad. Bear in mind, most other Christmas specials for children are about a reindeer who gets a special gift. But <laughs> as far as Christmas films go, this is a pretty deep message. I think there's something about vulnerability as well, because mm. effectively what they're saying to Charlie Brown in this special is it's OK to be vulnerable. Yes. When I mean, he goes to see the meanest girl in town to tell her his problems, he's happy to be open hearted. This is great gift. He's not closed off. And they're saying to him, well, actually, you were right that being open hearted, Linus has been open hearted. That touched their hearts. They were listening to that speech in the school hall the same as we were. And obviously the, the rush at the end when they all rush around him and say, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown, is because they were listening as well. And it touched them as much as it touched you. As a piece of writing, it's nothing magic happens. No one, no one finds the MacGuffin that solves the problem. 
But weirdly, the spiritual thing in the middle has answered the question. So someone online was saying, the interesting thing about the line of speech is that it is integral to the story. You can't take it out. If someone at the channel had said, actually, that's a bit on the nose, and you took it out, the story would collapse. Mm. It's not a bit of texture. It's the crucial incident. That's amazing. Put it in a place where you can't remove it without the thing collapsing. It's really ballsy. This is a cartoon, and cartoons are the product of many, many hands, so it's very hard to have an individual voice in a cartoon. And the credits at the end of this are quite short, because it's a small team who've made it. That lovely credit for graphic blandishment, rather than <laughs> animators, which is a lovely phrase. But it made me think of people like Oliver Postgate. It made me think of people who have made a little cartoon studio that's them and two mates. And it looks like it's a single person or three people's vision. It's had maverick decisions made about it because a small crew did it, so it's quite nimble and quite fast no one argued with it. It's got that space and silence and craft to it that um, animation made for art house purposes has got. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives the whole thing just gives the audience a lot of credit, which you don't find today. You sort of, if you put a joke in something, you know, the most common note you get back is, "Will people know what that is?" Yeah, and and you're sort of, I guess, pandering to what you think is the lowest common denominator or the audience's knowledge base, rather than sort of just putting it in there and trusting yeah. that it will be well received or that it will be I guess it implied with context or or that people are educated you don't get that anymore you know what you know where you don't get that note where? kids tv really no. in kids tv you can make the most enormous esoteric difficult references and they go straight through <laughs> because, because kids for some are, reason kids you know, are trusted kids are used to not understanding stuff it is assumed that kids spend their whole life listening to references they don't understand and then they their brains learn it but there's an there's a, a misunderstanding that when adults hear something they don't understand that they balk at it and vomit and then just get really cross with you and run away whereas kids are used to every day at school they're given references they don't understand which they're then meant to assimilate peanuts was a huge thing it was full of references to politicians and historical figures and baseball players that i've got no business knowing but i never went oh i've never heard of willie mays so i'm not going to read peanuts anymore i went well i can guess he must be a baseball player or something mm. it's the same with the simpsons as well that's totally. another way in which the mm. in which peanuts sort of was a predecessor simpsons completely just especially in the early episodes trusted their audience to just be like well keep up or or don't get this joke who cares yeah. you know mondale to heart where's the beef <laughs> i don't you know, know. <laughs> means means nothing to you know in terms of like most people's cultural references but i i would say yeah most of my education with pop culture references and historical yeah. references comes quite alarmingly and directly from The Simpsons. Gee, do they still make wooden Christmas trees? This little green one here seems to need a home. I don't know, Charlie Brown. Remember what Lucy said? This doesn't seem to fit the modern spirit. I don't care. We'll decorate it and it'll be just right for our play. Besides, I think it needs me. I think one one rule they've broken is is really interesting is that they've created a family with no adults. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah, that's revolutionary. Yeah, the adults are irrelevant. You, the adults don't even the adults are just 
trombones. Well, even, mm. in, uh, in the first one, in 65, there's not even the... Tr- the trombone teacher, which everyone associates with Peanuts, comes in really late mm. that you start needing a teacher's voice. But in these early specials and in the early strips, there are no grown-ups at all. They're completely off-screen. They don't even get a pair of feet. It's not even the relationship that's in Calvin and Hobbes where there's a mum and dad or in The Incredibles or something where the, the mum and dad story is as important. And people always talk that about kids won't watch something without other kids in it because that's their point of entry. But a lot of grown-ups won't watch something without grown-ups in. That's that was how Pixar got around it. They always put uh, Andy's mom in there or, or Andy as a surrogate dad in Toy Story. So there's a parent's view. But Peanuts doesn't have a parent's eye view in it. You've just got to get down there on the floor with the kids. Even though Peanuts exists as a commercial entity and a very successful commercial entity, the Peanuts that Schultz is doing, that he is his pen makes and his mind makes, somehow remains something completely separate and apart from that. And it's probably because he did it on his own right until he died. And he never did what Jim Davis who did Garfield did. He never got a team of people in to draw it. It was always him from his brain to the page straight away. He owned it completely. It was never an industrialised process making the strips. So it does feel like his voice. He wrote that beautiful farewell letter to his characters when he decided to stop doing, when he wasn't well enough to do the strips anymore. Oh, I wasn't aware of this. Uh, See if I can find it. Take a second. Yeah. Dear friends, I have been fortunate to draw Charlie Brown and his friends for almost 50 years. It has been the fulfilment of my childhood ambition. Unfortunately, I am no longer able to maintain the schedule demanded by a daily comic strip. My family does not wish Peanuts to be continued by anyone else. Therefore, I am announcing my retirement. I have been grateful over the years for the loyalty of our editors and the wonderful support and love expressed to me by fans of the comic strip. Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, Lucy. How can I ever forget them? Charles M. Schultz. That's lovely. That's giving me a shiver. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Merry Christmas, one and all. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all sing. Beautiful. Um, Obviously, the only thing that remains to say after that is thank you very much, Sarah Gibbs. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me.